Good morning, everyone. This is Carolyn reading to you from the Cape Cod Times. As usual, we'll start with the local weather. Today's highs will be around 37 degrees. We'll see a couple of rain or snow showers. Tonight, we'll have some low clouds with highs around 25 degrees. The sun rose this morning at 6.53 a.m. and will set tonight at 4.11 p.m. Tomorrow, Thursday, December 7th, we'll see a cold day with partial sunshine. Highs will be 36 degrees and lows 28 degrees. Friday will be a partly sunny day. It will not be as cold, and there will be times of sun and clouds. Highs, 45 degrees, and lows, 41 degrees. Saturday will be a day of abundant sunshine, with highs of 53 degrees and lows of 43 degrees. And finally, on Sunday, it will be a very windy day, and we'll have a little bit of afternoon rain. Highs will be 56 degrees and lows 47 degrees. And next we'll go to the lottery numbers. In the numbers game for yesterday, Tuesday, December 5th, at the midday drawing, the numbers were 7, 6, 8, and 1. I'll repeat that. 7, 6, 8, and 1. The evening drawing for yesterday, Tuesday, December 5th, was 7716. Again, that is 7716. The mass cash numbers for yesterday, December 5th, were 4, 9, 13, 17, and 28. Mega Millions numbers for Tuesday, December 5th, were 18, 35, 40, 64, 67, with a bonus number of 18. And finally, the Lucky for Life numbers for yesterday, December 5th, 11, 12, 21, 22, 35, and a lucky ball of 1. If you were one of the ones that played, we wish you all the best of luck. And now we'll go to our front page local stories. The headline is Determined to Make It Work. Falmouth Man on a Mission to Be Successful Commercial Rod and Reeler. By Denise Coffey, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. Ken Baumann is two years into his attempt to make a living as a commercial rod and reel fisherman. It started, he said, after he got into an argument with another commercial fisherman who said it couldn't be done. Baumann thought there was a way, one that would require him to take unusual steps and supplement his income with other work. Fishing has always been a passion for the 44-year-old, who said it would be a thing he'd do if he had a million bucks. Bauman 
doesn't have a million dollars, and his rod and reel efforts haven't provided him with sufficient finances yet. But he believes that if he can figure out a way to make commercial rod and reel work, others will follow. Nat Chalky, who used to run Get the Net Charters in Falmouth, was once a commercial rod and reel fisherman. Everybody that I know who does it, they are charter captains or something, and they use it to supplement their charter stuff. He said in a phone interview, "I don't know too many guys who do it and actually make a living at it." A commercial rod and reel permit in Massachusetts allows a fisher to catch and sell fin fish to a licensed dealer. No other gear types are allowed. Endorsements are required depending on the fishery in question, such as bluefin tuna. Massachusetts offers eight different rod and reel permit types. Including those with boats, State Division of Marine Fisheries Assistant Director Story Reed said, "There are about three thousand five hundred permits for owners of boats up to fifty-nine feet in length, and most of those individuals fish for striped bass and tuna. Commercial tuna rod and reel fishers." Include many non-professionals who only fish for tuna, so numbers are difficult to get at from the permit data. He said. Paying the bills in winter. There are all kinds of challenges for those who want to get into commercial fishing, let alone rod and reel fishing. Bauman started small and economical. He built his first. Twenty-foot Tolman skiff about fifteen years ago, using a manual and modifying it for Cape waters. In the intervening years, he has built or bought, modified, and sold about ten different boats. The work helps pay the bills in the winter season when he isn't fishing. His latest boat is a twenty-three-foot seacraft. He put on a new deck, closed the transom, built a new leaning post and doghouse. His bird dog Lucy can point Menhaden in the water. Bauman claims. He bought and installed a 150 horsepower engine from Green Pond Marina for twelve thousand dollars, when he easily could have spent thirty thousand dollars on a new one. He bought the cheapest radar system he could find for four thousand five hundred dollars, rather than spend ten thousand or twelve thousand dollars. He said, "For the kind of fishing I'm doing, it seems to work." He said, "I bet the old hands will think, 'Dude doesn't even know what he doesn't know.'" He wrote in an email, starting in April each year. Bauman fishes four or five months out of a six-month window, starting in April. The relatively short window is a function of the size of the boat. 
Some days he doesn't go out if he thinks it's too dangerous. His life, in fact, is driven by weather, tides, state and federal fishing regulations, and fishery seasons, he said. Permits, endorsements, and whether a fishery is open or closed figure into the equation. In April, Bauman fishes for squid, which requires a coastal permit. He uses squid as a bait for scup and sells the excess to a distributor. In mid-May, he turns from squid to scup, an open fishery that he believes could be financially viable. Bluefish come in mid-June. Striped bass season hits in July. And if he wants to fish for bluefin tuna, he needs to get a federal permit. The real cost is getting permits for closed fisheries. But the real cost is getting permits for closed fisheries, such as black sea bass. Those permits can only be bought from commercial fishermen selling theirs. Aubrey Church, policy director at Cape Cod Fishermen's Alliance, said she had seen permits go from $5,000 to $10,000. Recently, a black sea bass and tautog permit went for $24,000, and a fluke and black sea bass permit was priced at $35,000 on the Athern Marine Agency website. The money makers, sea bass, fluke, tautog, are all closed and must be transferred, Bauman said. He considered buying a black sea bass permit last year, but watched as it climbed from $5,000 to $7,500. He's seen permits for $17,000. Prices are high because too many fishermen are sitting on permits they aren't using, Bauman said. Bauman's mission, in part, is to get more people into the commercial rod and reel fishery. He knows catching, quote, a ton of fish, end quote, is necessary. He counts boat building, modifying, and selling as a revenue stream. He intends to offer a marine survey business eventually. And he hopes the state will continue a COVID-19 program that allowed him and other commercial fishermen to sell their catch directly from the dock rather than to dealers only. Bauman doesn't expect to get rich, but he does believe he can clear a path for others if he figures out the financing. There is some avenue, some way to make money for a small boat, rod, and reel fisherman, he said. He hasn't figured it out, but he's willing to try, at least for a bit longer. After fishing all night for squid, storing the catch in the freezer, opening a beer and lighting a cigarette, the feeling of accomplishment is like no other feeling in the world, he said. 
And there are two pictures that go along with this story. The first is Ken Bauman on his boat. It says, Ken Bauman is two years into attempt to make a living as a commercial rod and reel fisherman. Bauman, with his dog Lucy, sits in his boat Chaser, moored on November 1st in Quisset Harbor in Massachusetts. The second picture is again of his boat, and the caption reads, Bauman and Lucy motor into the dock on November 1st at Quisset Harbor in Falmouth. The second front page headline story in today's Cape Cod Times is entitled, Sagamore Bridge Replacement Cost Covered in Two Grant Requests by Walker Armstrong, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. The state and a federal agency have applied for enough money to cover more than the estimated $2.13 billion cost to replace the aging Sagamore Bridge in Bourne. On Monday, the Massachusetts Department of Transportation announced a joint application with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers seeking $1.06 billion in federal funding for the phased replacement of the two Cape Cod Canal bridges. The phased replacement would begin with the heavily trafficked Sagamore Bridge, the announcement said. Along with Monday's announcement, Governor Maura Healy's office announced on August 14th an application plan for securing $1.44 billion in federal discretionary grant money to replace both the Sagamore and Bourne bridges. The total of the application in August and the one announced Monday are $2.5 billion. The Sagamore Bridge replacement cost now stands at $2.31 billion, and replacing both bridges is now estimated to cost $4.541 billion. Both bridges, which are the primary connection to Cape Cod from the mainland, are an increasing public safety risk due to their ages. Both were built in 1933. Construction on the Sagamore Bridge could begin in 2028 under the new funding scheme. Earlier this year, the project hit a wall when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers learned it would not receive grants of more than $1 billion in discretionary funds under the 2022 Infrastructure for Rebuilding America Mega Grant Program and the Bridge Investment Program. Monday's joint grant application shows the, quote, immediate need, end quote, to secure funding so that the bridge replacement project can advance into further design and construction. State Transportation Secretary and CEO Monica Tibbetts-Nutt 
said in a statement. Funding is being sought through the fiscal year 2023 to 2026 Bridge Investment Program Large Bridge Project Program, according to the State Transportation Agency. Joint efforts underway to find money to replace Cape Cod Canal bridges. Since the Army Corps of Engineers did not receive the funding, several joint efforts have been underway, from U.S. lawmakers to local transportation infrastructure officials. The project is set to take place in phases, with the Sagamore Bridge being the first choice and a replacement of the Bourne Bridge to follow. To allow the continuous flow of traffic throughout construction, the new Sagamore Bridge will be built alongside the existing bridge, according to the State Transportation Agency. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers could not be reached Monday for comment. And there is a picture of the Sagamore Bridge, which goes along with this story. The caption reads, State transportation officials said Monday that the recent applications for federal grants will more than pay for the $2.31 billion needed to replace the Sagamore Bridge in Bourne. The aging bridge and its sister bridge to the west, the Bourne Bridge, are slated for replacement, but the Sagamore Bridge, shown here in 2020, is the priority due to higher traffic volumes, according to the state. Our next front page story, Cape Cod Times Needy Fund Helps Local Mom, by Eric Williams, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. Her carefully balanced budget began to dip into the red. This dedicated single mother of two has worked at a local school for over a decade. But the summer months, when she was unemployed, were always a challenge. She set money aside to get through the season, but utility bill spikes and soaring grocery expenses put the family in a tough position. She crunched the summer numbers, but they didn't look good. If she got a seasonal job, the cost of child care or summer camp for her kids would outweigh her earnings. It was time to reach out to the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund. Thanks to donors like you, the Needy Fund was able to act quickly with financial assistance paid to her landlord so the family wouldn't lose their affordable housing unit. The Needy Fund also connected the single mom with resources and benefits that could help reduce the strain on her monthly budget. Now our neighbor can face her financial future and future summers with more confidence. What is the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund? The nonprofit Cape Cod Times Needy Fund 
has provided emergency financial assistance to thousands of Cape Codders and Islanders since 1936. That assistance is made possible because of the continued generosity of Neighbors Helping Neighbors. The Needy Fund provides short-term emergency assistance to Cape and Islands residents so they can continue to go to work and or stay in their homes. People in need submit their requests to help for, excuse me, submit their requests for help to the Needy Fund, which in turn pays for the goods or services, a medical bill, for example, through a voucher system. No cash is given to Needy Fund recipients. How to Donate to the Needy Fund Donations, which are tax-deductible, may be made online at needyfund.org slash donate. Checks payable to the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund should be mailed to Cape Cod Times Needy Fund, Post Office Box 36, Hyannis, Massachusetts, 026 How to Get Needy Fund Assistance Those needing assistance may contact the Needy Fund at 508-778-5661 or 800-422-1446. Questions can be emailed to info at needyfund.org. The Needy Fund is also on Facebook at facebook.com slash needyfund and X, which is formerly Twitter, at needyfund. Needy Fund donors. The fundraising goal this season is $1.6 million, and every donation helps. Thanks to everyone who has made a donation to the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund. Total contributions to date are $282,041.03. And next today, we'll go to stories on the Cape and Islands page. The first is entitled, Cromwell's 2020 Indictment Caused Harm, Tribe Claims in Lawsuit, by Rachel Devaney, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. The Mashpee Wampanoag Tribe and two affiliates have brought a civil lawsuit against Cedric Cromwell, former chairman of the tribe. The two other defendants in the lawsuit filed November 13th are Louis Caterina of Greenville, Rhode Island, and Constantinos Mitrocostas of Mashpee. The lawsuit alleges that the tribe and its affiliates have suffered financial harm due to Cromwell's 2020 federal indictment, 
which was related to the tribe's plan to build a resort and casino in Taunton. In May of 2022, Cromwell was found guilty of bribery, conspiracy, extortion, and was sentenced to 36 months in prison. Cromwell was ordered to pay a $25,000 fine, a $200 special assessment, and restitution. As of January 9th, the restitution amount was $250,000. Following Cromwell's indictment on those charges, the plaintiffs incurred costs as a result of business interruptions caused by the indictment. They have struggled to acquire new sources of financing due to harm caused by the indictment and their reputations have been damaged, according to the complaint. The Mashpee Wampanoag tribe declined to comment on the advice of their attorney, according to Stephen Peters, a tribe spokesperson. Jeffrey B. Loeb and Jonathan R. Loeb, attorneys for the tribe, did not return calls and emails seeking comment. The names of the attorneys for the defendants have not been filed in court records. The defendants did not immediately return calls for comment. The plaintiffs, including the tribe, the Mashpee Wampanoag Village Limited Partnership or General Partner, and the Mashpee Wampanoag Gaming Authority are requesting financial compensation in an amount to be determined, together with interest and costs. Cedric Cromwell's appeal of his conviction is pending in federal court. Tribal members elected Cromwell as their chairman in 2009. He was re-elected in 2013 and 2017. Cromwell appealed his 2022 sentence in January, and the case is before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office and court documents. Cromwell was granted bail pending appeal of his conviction. Plaintiffs allege that defendants funneled payments and laundered money. The tribe voted to build a $500 million resort and casino complex in Taunton in 2012. At that time, Cromwell was chairman. During that time, at Cromwell's direction, Mitrocostas and Katerina funneled payments from third parties who wanted to do business with the plaintiffs into bank accounts controlled by Cromwell, according to the lawsuit. The plaintiffs allege that Cromwell used his position as tribal chairperson and president of the Gaming Authority 
as a way to make money from others by selling access to the highest ranks of the tribe's governmental body. Metrocostus assisted in Cromwell's selling of access by helping to launder funds through CM International and other entities, according to court documents. In court documents, Mitrocostas is named as the sole member of CM International and had total control over CM International Consulting, LLC. Katerina assisted Cromwell by acting as Cromwell's agent in soliciting those that might want access and by directing them on how to pay for and gain that access, according to the complaint. The next story on the Cape and Islands page is entitled Indecent Assault Charge Brought Against Former Latham Center's Teacher by Walker Armstrong, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. A former Brewster teacher facing charges related to an alleged assault of an adult female who is said to have, quote, significant developmental delays, end quote, was arraigned November 29th in Orleans District Court. Frederick Walters, age 60, is charged with rape, indecent assault, and battery on a disabled person and witness intimidation, according to court records. We'll stop this story now and go to the obituaries, and we will resume this story at the conclusion of the obituaries. And now, in other local news, we will go to the obituaries. Louise Agnes Govett Thayer. Louise Agnes Govett Thayer passed away peacefully on December 3rd, surrounded by her family. She was 89 years old. Louise can be remembered for her dry wit, intellect, entrepreneurial spirit, and zest for life. Louise was raised in New York and Cape Cod. She spent her summers in the, as a counselor at Avalon Sailing Camp in Chatham, Massachusetts, where during a race she met her future husband, Brooks Thayer. In 1958, they permanently moved to Orleans, Massachusetts, and took over running Camp Namakoyet Sailing Camp. In the 1980s, her passion for food expanded as she wrote weekly food articles for the Cape Cotter and bought and published the series Where to Eat on Cape Cod. Louise is survived by her sons and their families. Calling hours will be at Nickerson Funeral Home December 9th between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. In lieu of flowers, the family suggests donations 
to the Cape Cod Hospital Foundation or other charity of your choice. Burial will be private. For online condolences, please visit www.nickersonfunerals.com. Rose Mary Regan Rose M. Abassiano Regan of North Beach, Maryland, and formerly of Mashpee, Massachusetts, passed away peacefully on November 29, 2023. She married her high school sweetheart, the late James T. Regan, in 1975. Together, they shared countless adventures while living in Hawaii, San Diego, and traveling throughout the United States. Rose was an active member of her Cape Cod community to include volunteering in Mashpee Public Schools. Rose was elegant, classy, generous, witty, and full of life. She left a lasting impression on everyone she met. Funeral arrangements are in the care of the Rausch Funeral Home, 8325 Mount Harmony Lane, Owings, Maryland. Calling hours are on Friday, December 8th from 6 to 8 p.m. and Saturday, December 9th from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. at the funeral home. A funeral service will be held at St. Anthony's Catholic Church, 8816 Chesapeake Avenue, North Beach, Maryland, on December 9th at 11 a.m. Jacqueline Barrett Jacqueline, or Jackie M. Barrett, age 94, of Harwichport, Massachusetts, passed away on September 15, 2023. Jackie met and married her late husband of 70 years, Charles, or Babe, Barrett, on November 9, 1947. They built their home in Harwichport, where they raised four children. Jackie loved needlepoint and decorative painting, although reading was her greatest passion, sometimes reading two or three novels a week. She volunteered her time at Harwichport Library. Services will be private. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to Harwichport Library, 49 Bank Street, Harwichport, Massachusetts, 02646. To share a memory or leave a condolence, please visit www.doenbealamesharwich.com. And now we will go back to the story that we were reading before the obituaries, which was entitled, Indecent Assault Charge Brought Against Former Latham Center's Teacher. Walters worked at Latham Centers, a Brewster residential vocational school for people with disabilities, such as Prader-Willi syndrome, at the time of the alleged incident, 
according to court records. Walters pleaded not guilty to all charges and was released on $5,000 cash bail under the provision that he wears a GPS monitor and stay away from the victim. Nathaniel Amendola, Walter's defense attorney, said Monday he could not comment on the specifics of the case. My official comment is that he is innocent, period, Amendola said. Latham Centers did not respond to calls made to the center seeking comment on the allegations. The woman told investigators that Walters drove her off campus to his house in Brewster under the guise of, quote, picking up supplies, end quote, from Mid-Cape home centers. She alleged Walters, quote, put his hand down the front of her pants and rubbed her private parts, end quote, while they were in the car, according to court records. They never went to get supplies, she said, and instead went to Walter's house, where it is alleged that he sexually assaulted her on a couch. The woman told police Walter's assaulted her on another occasion as well. Results from a DNA testing report from the Massachusetts State Police Crime Lab conducted the day after the incident is said to have taken place, came back positive for male DNA, according to court records. The woman was living in a monitored residential setting at that time, and no other males would have had access to touch the woman in a sexual manner during the time period, said Brewster Police Detective Jacob Zontini in the police report. The locations, the male DNA was found on the woman's body, corroborate her description of where she was touched, the report said. And on the Cape and Islands page, there's an additional picture which is entitled a magical moment, and the picture is of families waiting outside of a train. And the caption reads, Patrons wait to enter the Polar Express in Buzzards Bay Friday evening. The Cape Cod Central Railroad offers a one to one and a half hour trip where kids get to meet Santa. According to the Polar Express website, a conductor will punch golden tickets for each child. Dancing chefs and waiters will perform while Christmas carols play, and there will be a reading of the classic children's book, The Polar Express, by Chris von Alsberg. <clears throat> and now we'll move on to a Massachusetts state story. The title is Closeout Budget Contains $250 Million for Emergency Shelters by Chris Lisinski and Sam Doran, Statehouse News Service. 
After weeks of legislative procrastination, parliamentary delays, and finger-pointing, a $3.1 billion spending bill packed with money for the stretched-thin emergency shelter system and public works raised landed on Governor Maura Healy's desk Monday, and she immediately signed it. House Democrats were able to get a quorum of members together to push through a compromise on a long-overdue package they failed to wrap up before the legislature shifted into a seven-week holiday stretch of informal sessions. Republicans in the House successfully stalled the bill on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday by pointing out that not enough lawmakers were present to constitute a quorum. But enough Democrats ventured to the State House on Monday to get the bill through that branch. The House adopted the compromise bill on a hand counted 105 to 14 vote and the Senate followed through several hours later with a 20-3 vote. Both branches then gave the measure final approval on unrecorded voice votes, sending it to Healy. The bill includes critical funds to fulfill state employee raises, which had already been collectively bargained and ratified, as well as $250 million to try and keep pace with the unprecedented demand on the emergency shelter system. I'm proud to sign this supplemental budget that dedicates critical funding for hard-earned raises for workers, supports municipalities with covering the costs of special education and flood flood relief, sustains our emergency assistance program, and more. I'm grateful to our colleagues in the legislature for their partnership, Healy said in a statement. The bill also schedules the next statewide primary for September 3, 2024 directs money to school districts facing increased special education costs, transfers money to address the state's unfunded pension liability, and more. Language to facilitate a New England Revolution stadium in Everett was dropped from the final compromise, but top Democrats in the House and Senate say the idea, which has won favor in both branches at different points, remains under consideration. Stuttered progress on the bill in recent weeks set off a whirlwind of finger-pointing. Despite a light-fall agenda, Democrats failed to agree among themselves on the bill before formal sessions for the year 
ended November 15th, opening the door for Republicans who disliked the bill's approach to shelter crisis management. State Republicans could have tried to delay the bill on Monday, but agreed to let it proceed while recording their opposition. We could have gone down that road, said Republican Senator Peter Durant of Spencer, the chamber's newest member, who on the campaign trail was a vocal critic of the state's emergency shelter management. But Democrats could have used parliamentary tactics of their own in response, he said, and ultimately pushed the bill through on an unrecorded voice vote. This was a better option to us that you could at least heard or at least semi-recorded, Durant said after the session. The bill signing will allow the state controller to start closing the financial books for the fiscal year that ended June 30th. Senate Ways and Means Committee Chair Michael Rodriguez, his chamber's lead negotiator on the measure, told his colleagues that Monday's action could put worker raises in effect for the holiday season, and he blamed the House for preventing retroactive pay from taking effect before the new year. I've been told in my conversations with the administration that if we complete the work today and get this budget to the governor, those employees will be able to see their raises in the paychecks that come out on December 22nd, before the Christmas holiday, Rodriguez said in a speech from the Senate floor. Wouldn't that be a great thing? Unfortunately, because of the delay down the hall, they will not be able to receive the retroactive pay that they will be entitled to. That will come in early January. The governor kicked off debate by filing her own closeout budget on September 13th with a request to steer $250 million more into the evolving emergency shelter crisis fueled in part by a massive increase in migrants arriving in Massachusetts. House Democrats did not advance their own version for nearly two months, and the two branches were unable to reconcile differences in their approaches as formal sessions for the year drew to a close. Republicans in that chamber prevented the late-arriving compromise from advancing on three successive days last week, prompting House Speaker Ron Mariano to contend that they were obstructing the measure, quote, because they want to seem relevant, end quote. GOP leaders 
have opposed the latest infusion of funding into the emergency shelter system, which brings the total amount for fiscal year 24 up to about five seven excuse me five hundred and seventy five million dollars. Democrats have said they expect the additional money to last into the spring, but not the entirety of the fiscal year. We all know the funding in this bill is just the tip of the iceberg, which will ultimately crowd out spending in other areas absent serious and meaningful reforms, said House Minority Leader Brad Jones. The Democrats are trying to promote a false narrative, laying the blame on our caucus for holding up final action on the closeout budget for the last few days, he said in a statement on behalf of his caucus. The reality is the Democrats delayed action on this bill for nearly two months, failed to reach an agreement before formal sessions ended on November 15th, and did not produce a conference committee report until November 30th, exactly 11 weeks after Governor Healy first filed the bill. Lawmakers once sought to close the state's financial books in the late summer or fall. But in recent years, the Democrat supermajorities have worked at a glacial pace. The fiscal 2023 closeout budget becomes the second latest to win enactment since the turn of the century, according to data tracked by the Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation, lagging only fiscal year 2019, which the legislature approved on December 12, 2019. Republicans pushed unsuccessfully for the legislature to reconvene a formal session where the final compromise bill could receive a roll-call vote and debate. Legislative rules call for informal-only sessions for the final seven weeks in the first year of the session. The Senate adopted a GOP-backed order that would allow a rare holiday season formal session to consider the closeout budget. But the House never took action on the proposal preventing it from having any effect. We wanted to make sure the public was aware of what was going on, and we were taking a stand to say, quote, you can't operate this way, end quote, said Republican Senator Ryan Fatman of Sutton. And next we'll go to a local sports story. Barnstable quarterback Matt Peterkuski on path to coaching career by George Costinas, special to Cape Cod Times. Fate, karma, destiny. For Matt Peterkuski, 
it might be a little of all three. This past football season, Peter Kuski, who was the starting quarterback at Barnstable High School in 2018 and 2019, joined the Harvard University coaching staff as an offensive quality control coach and was part of the Crimson's success. Harvard finished the season at 8-2 and two with a share of the Ivy League title. Peter Kusky worked closely with Harvard's offensive coordinator, Mickey Fine, who coincidentally played quarterback at Barnstable High School and, coincidentally, they both wore jersey number 16. Not necessarily, but maybe partly because of the Barnstable connection, Peter Kusky came to the attention of the Harvard staff. There's always somebody who knows different people who know somebody. The networking side of things is real, said Fine, so it didn't hurt. But Fine said Peter Kusky presented himself very well in the interviewing process, and his knowledge of the game, along with other personal characteristics, won him the job. Ultimately, it was his concern for others and his ability to communicate, which is essential for a coach, that most impressed Fine, the whole offensive staff, and head coach Tim Murphy. Peter Kusky said Fine is his direct supervisor, but he also worked to assist the entire offensive staff. I attended weekly meetings, helped organize the weekly game plan, reviewed film, all that stuff, said Peter Kusky. He also drew up past concepts, put together the playbooks for each week's game, created the scout cards, and anything else that was needed to prepare for games, Fine said Fine. I did give him assignments, and after the first couple of weeks, I didn't have to check up on him. I'd tell him to do something, and it was done, said Fine. It was a behind-the-scenes job, and he did a great job with that. He understood the language of the game, and because of his background, understood the demands of the coaching life, said Fine. On a path to college football. That is quite impressive for Peter Kusky, who, at 22, is officially on his way to what seems like a natural career path in college football. Peter Kusky grew up in Centerville and, as a boy, played in the Barnstable Silver Bullets youth football program. He then went to Barnstable High School, where he set a few school passing records while leading his team to a playoff spot, culminating in a 35-0 first-round win over Wellesley. And then he played college ball at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, 
graduating last spring with a degree in business management. His destiny was football, however, not business. He got an early taste of coaching when the 2020 high school football season was postponed until the spring of 2021, and Peter Kuski returned home to help coach the Barnstable freshman-slash-junior varsity team to an unbeaten record. Ross Jacola, Peter Kuski's coach at Barnstable, saw Peter Kuski's coaching talent right away while watching film with him, discussing game plans, and more impressively, when making decisions during the games. He could see it while it was happening and make adjustments, said Jacola, and he was able to communicate that almost immediately. He just understood the game, and no wonder. Growing up in a football family. Peter Kuski grew up in a football family, tossing the football around with his father and uncle and grandfather, who were all career coaches. They never forced football on me. It was always my choice. They were always supportive and taught me everything I know, said Peter Kuski. From a young age, I was learning the ins and outs of everything. This has been Carolyn, reading to you from the Cape Cod Times on Wednesday, December 6th. I hope you all have a wonderful day.